0: Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Hello, you sentient balls of stardust. I'm Casey Davis, and this is Struggle Care, the mental health podcast that does not expect you to save the rainforest when you're depressed. Today, I'm talking to Rebecca Gray, who's an environmental epidemiologist, and we're going to talk about eco-perfectionism and eco-shame. So if you've ever felt guilty for not being eco-friendly enough, this one is for you. Hello, and thank you for joining me today. One of the things that I've talked about a lot in my channels and I talk about in my book is my principle, you can't save the rainforest if you're depressed. And it's basically talking about how eco-shame and eco-perfectionism really can get in the way of us taking steps towards better functioning. And I wanted to do a couple of episodes on this. And the guest that I have today is Rebecca Gray. She's an environmental epidemiologist. And I'm going to let her introduce herself. Rebecca, tell us your sort of background and what you do for a living.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So first of all, I have my master's degree in public health, which means that I look at disease and health at a population level. So if medicine were the individual, I look at communities, countries, et cetera. And I'm an environmental epidemiologist. So I feel like the word epidemiology has gotten a lot of press during the pandemic, but essentially it is the study of patterns of disease in human populations, and the environmental part comes in because I study how things in the environment impact our health, either promote it or cause disease. So that could be chemical pollutants in our air or our drinking water, or it could be more physical characteristics of our environment like temperature or extreme weather events, et cetera. So, Obviously, climate change overlaps with that quite a bit. That is like kind of the overall gist of environmental epidemiology. In my job specifically, I work with government agencies. So I've worked with the Centers for Disease Control and the Environmental Protection Agency to help develop water guidelines for different pollutants in our water to keep communities safe from getting sick from bad things in our water. Awesome. So
0: you and I connected when I actually made a TikTok that said, I want to talk to someone who is an environmentalist that can talk about, you know, eco-shame, eco-perfection. And, you know, you and I connected and you reached out. And what I really was drawn to is that you not only had professional experience, And environmentalism and knowledge, but you also have quite a bit of personal experience and sort of what I've been calling environmental perfectionism. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, as a college student and then a graduate student who was training to be not only an environmental scientist, but also an environmental scientist focused on human health, I felt an immense amount of pressure to be kind of a poster child for both eco conservation. And a picture of human health. Obviously, both of those things are unattainable. But in terms of, you know, from the standpoint of eco perfectionism, it was things like feeling really compulsive and obsessive about reducing my carbon footprint, not using single use plastic, not creating food waste. And obviously, I was never able to, have not been able to achieve any of those things perfectly, which caused a lot of like very crippling anxiety and guilt. And that really fed into, again, a lot of this pressure I felt to be a perfectly healthy person. So I really struggled with an eating disorder called orthorexia, which is unhealthy fixation on kind of eating the quote-unquote right foods or a fear of eating the quote-unquote wrong foods and contamination. And I really, you know, for several years, the level to which my anxiety about being an imposter as both an environmentalist and a health scientist was debilitating and did interfere with my ability to do my job and live my life productively. So yeah.
0: What's so interesting is, you know, the study of how the environment affects our health. And there's also this sort of like, you're kind of in the upside down where it's like, this is an example of environment affecting health. Affecting health. Yeah. Right. But it's like all of the good things about being an environmentalist. It's Trying to achieve a good thing to perfection ends up having this really negative impact.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I say that as a person who has a lot of privileges that actually make it, I think, very easy for me to fit into the environmental movement. I am a white person. I am a thin person. I'm an able bodied person, a middle class person. So all of those things give me access to these spaces and having, you know, more marginalized identities on top of that, I think, I imagine would make it even more difficult. So yeah, I don't know the idea of like a poster child or a perfect embodiment of these values definitely has weighed on me in my life and is.
0: I recently had Imani Barberin on, and she's a disability activist. And we talked about the intersection between disability and environmentalism. And she was sharing with me about how much of the environmental movement is ableist or at least the ways in which people are pushing environmentalism can be ableist, can be anti-Black. And it was a fascinating conversation because when I think about, you know, what you're describing as like the poster child for environmentalism, I do always picture like a thin white woman who is like drinking out of a ball mason jar, right? And like, who is You know, biking to her job that allows that is somehow close enough to bike to, but is paying her enough that she can buy things that are more expensive because they're more sustainable. And it's truly, it's such a nuanced intersection. And so I think it's really interesting to talk to you and hear you say, you know, I kind of am someone with these privileges that fit into that mold. And even for you, it was damaging.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that I love about your content and the work that you do is separating morality and functionality. And I think such a contributor for me personally and for a lot of people is the feeling that embodying this archetype is moral, but archetypes of people don't have morality attached to them. And, you know, while individual behaviors can absolutely be productive and moral and contributing, engaging in everything all of the time, looking and being a certain way all of the time is not a good measure of our worth or our contribution as people because we are always going to fall short of that.
0: Let me tell you, when you said the words embodying the archetype, I got chills, like I got goosebumps. And I almost feel a little choked up because I feel as though you've put into words something that I've experienced my whole life. I've occupied several different spaces you know I occupied the recovery space when I was in recovery from drug addiction sort of the 12 step space the abstinence space space I have occupied you know the evangelical space at a time in my life I have occupied the mental health space and I really resonate with what you're saying even when I was in my addiction for me when I was having this root fear of not being enough of not being worthy of love what i always sort of tried to do to fix that was to look for whatever space i was occupying be it culture institution subculture i was always striving to be the perfect embodiment of the archetype so when i was using it was how do i be cooler how do i get better drugs how do i be perceived as you know a badass how do i and i was striving for that and i felt i could not reach it and then i get sober and i learned so many things and there were so many really great ways that i became healthier but that root of feeling unworthy of love just at some point shifted its focus to now i need to embody the archetype of recovery woman And that imposter syndrome that you're talking about remained, right? I I move into the church and I find myself, I want to stand in the front and I want to be a missionary and I want to be on staff and I want to be and recognizing and actually did become a missionary and then had sort of a crisis of faith fall apart during it. And it was around this idea where I realized so much of what I've been striving for isn't actually fueled by my real beliefs. It's fueled by this promise, this intangible promise that if I can embody the archetype of this space, I will finally be good enough. I will finally get love. I will finally like myself and others will like me too. I just have never really been able to put that into words before. So I thank you. That's, I think like a gift that's going to stick with me forever. And it applies here too, right? when we start to occupy spaces that we actually might really believe in with causes that we really do care about, but we can
1: kind of get hijacked by
0: that primal human need to be loved and to be worthy and to belong.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, you're going to thank me for putting into into words, like I'm going to thank you for putting into words, care tasks are functional, not moral. I mean, I think that, So much of like my growth and learning and recovery from an eating disorder and an anxiety disorder came from, honestly, social media, seeing people who had done this and had spent time thinking about it, put feelings that I had into words that helped me understand them. That happened to me, you know, when I was, again, recovering from orthorexia, I hadn't found like the term intuitive eating yet. But I was like starting to think it. I remember telling friends, like, it's just easier if I don't like think too much about what I'm eating. And then, like, a year later, I'm on Instagram and like kids eat in color is like, it's called intuitive eating and things like that, which I think, I don't know. Social media is like such a a great tool. I love social media. (laughs) Me too.
0: I always laugh if you've ever seen like, Every once in a while, it happens a lot. Some artists will draw like these kind of metaphorical representations of like the evils of technology. And it'll be like two people in a room, but they're looking at their phones. Yeah. And I'm always like, where's the artist who's going to draw like the woman suffering from postpartum depression whose like lifeline is coming through that social media?
1: Yeah. I'm like, people want to knock Instagram infographics as if I haven't learned like most of my like activism from Instagram and TikTok.
0: I have. I have learned most of my activism from TikTok. And TikTok in particular has put me in touch with creators that I would never have come across. Like I just I live in a very white space. I live in a very abled space. And sometimes, you know, you know the value of not just being surrounded by that, but at the same time, purposefully trying to befriend a person of color because they're a person of color is also like not, not it, not it. (laughs) Right. And so there is this sort of, how do I diversify my mind? How do I decolonize my views? And social media has been the way that's happened by following these creators That I never would have been able to cross paths with in real life. And so I totally get you there. And, you know, it's interesting, because that aspect of social media has been so helpful. And I'm sure that social media has also been part of the issue with eco perfectionism, you know, because we do see people post only their best moments.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, I would say like four years ago, I don't know about anybody else, but my Instagram was filled with, again, the archetype of a zero waste girl, a slow fashion girl, like mainly white women, mainly thin women with expensive, sustainable clothing, with plastic free bathrooms, with I don't know who had time to like bake bread twice a week and like (laughs) film an Instagram video of it. And I was like in grad school and technically my income was below the poverty line. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm doing it wrong.
0: I've never met a free trial that I didn't like. The problem is, is that I often forget to get out of them before they start charging me. But I don't have that problem since I started using Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, and I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you, up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com struggle. That's rocketmoney.com struggle. Rocketmoney.com struggle. I have a six-year-old that's really into learning. Learning books, learning apps, learning shows. But I'm really grateful to have found a learning podcast for her. From the creators of the hit kid podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited to a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs, making learning cool. My kid really appreciates these. They're only 15 minutes long, and she can stay engaged she likes the characters. It's perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kids won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Yeah, even when I like, so I have an online shop, I sell a lot of digital downloads, but I also sell some physical products. And as I'm moving into this space where I want to start selling like workbooks and planners and things like that, there is the option of like sustainable packaging and all these sort of things. And as I look into it, it's like, it's more expensive. And I know that the majority of my demographic, like, probably can't afford. So I'm always trying to look for how can I make this the most accessible resource or the most accessible product while still keeping the business running. And you have to choose between the two sometimes, right? And I think... One of the other things that you said that really hit me was when you were talking about intuitive eating. So I actually read The Fuck It Diet by Caroline Dooner a few years ago. And I've been, you know, my philosophies in struggle care have been supremely influenced by the intuitive eating anti-diet movement, where we're taking the morality out of food. And so, you know, taking the morality out of care tasks was something that I started talking about, especially with people who were struggling with mental health, chronic, you know, illness. And one of the ways when I Stopped thinking it was this moral obligation. I realized that there also weren't any rules. And then I could kind of get creative about how can I make these rhythms and rituals of care tasking work for me. And for me, as a person that was, you know, I was at home, I had some postpartum depression, I have ADHD, I was finding these what I call adaptive routines. Like, okay, my dishes are going days and days and days, and I'm getting bugs because I can't, and then I'm overwhelmed. But if I, put my dishes in the dishwasher at seven o'clock every night and I run the dishwasher, that's more manageable. And then I found that if I do it a half a load, like if I don't wait until the dishwasher is full, I'm less overwhelmed, I'm less paralyzed, I don't. And so when I started talking to people about these adaptive routines, I would get comments and they were usually pretty cruel about, I guess you don't care about the environment if you're gonna waste water like that. I talked one time about how, you know, all calories are good calories when you're grieving. And, you know, I had a radical vegan comment about how, you know, we were killing other mothers just to save human mothers. And there's this like visceral cruelty with environmentalism that is really pretty horrifying and toxic. Yeah. And so I'm curious to hear as an environmentalist, you know, what kinds of things do you think that the environmental movement as it stands today, what things are are we doing well that are actually helping? and what ways is some of the avenues we're taking the environmental movement not being helpful or maybe even being oppressive?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think like your example of the dishwasher is such a good one because it's like, okay, it helps you be a lot more functional and taking care of yourself and your family. And it used twice as much water. So like, obviously, there's a cost environmentally there. But I think an exercise that I have tried to work on doing over the past few years that I would really encourage other people to do is when thinking about like an eco behavior or sustainability behavior, asking yourself and being really honest with yourself, can I engage in this behavior and honor my health and well-being? And that answer is going to be different depending on the person and the behavior. So something that you bring up that I really like is, I think it's like a thousand unseen privileges and barriers. So like, for example, for years, I was a vegetarian because I was like, well, I have an understanding that vegetarianism is good for the environment and it's good for my health. Actually, turns out being a vegetarian and restricting my food is not good for my health because I'm a person with a history of ED. For other people, vegetarianism is a great way to engage in an eco behavior and reduce their carbon footprint, and it works really well for their health. That wasn't true for me. It was not a behavior that I could engage in healthfully. Like on the flip side of that, I really like to walk places when I can instead of driving. That reduces my carbon footprint. I have a lot of privileges that make that accessible to me. You know, I'm able-bodied. I have the relative luxury of time. I live in a really walkable community and I enjoy doing it. So that fits into my life. It might not for somebody else with different privileges and barriers. And, you know, sometimes it's even more clear cut than that. There are people with chronic health conditions or injuries who need single-use plastic to stay alive. Not that it has to be a question of, you know, yes or no survival, but a question of, I think your functionality and your happiness and the only person you can really have that conversation with is yourself. So like in, on the topic of which behaviors are really good and work and which don't, I think it is so nuanced and so personal. And I also genuinely think that you know humans are pretty inclined to be moral and contributing. And when the answer is, yes, this behavior does fit into my life, people are pretty inclined to engage with it. Of their own free will. I mean, most of us do use washable, reusable dishes instead of single use ones, unless circumstances make it challenging to do that. So I think the pressure on the individual to perform perfectly is a real negative of the environmental movement. And I don't know, like the idea that each of us individually <laughs> is responsible for changing the outcome of climate change or the trajectory of the world. By remembering our reusable bags every day is a pretty unrealistic myth.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I have found interesting is this hyper focus on the individual. Like, you know, it's up to all of us to not use straws to save the world. And, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but what I'm learning is that there's a lot of misplaced impetus on. Who is really capable of saving or damning the world? And, you know, I don't want to move into a space where we think, oh, because, you know, since what I do doesn't matter, who cares? But there's got to be some sort of nuance that we can wrap our heads around. Like, what really does need to happen to prevent climate change?
1: Great question. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think what you're getting at too is in America, we live under capitalism. Capitalism places the onus on the individual for their success, and capitalism has placed a lot of the onus on us, the individuals, to stop climate change. And a lot of that time, that involves us buying things to be or look sustainable, or investing our time and energy, which are limited.
0: So I just have to say that, again, what you just said. You said, you know, we live under a capitalistic society. That's just a neutral statement. It's just a truth. And a lot of the environmentalism that we are taught or given is based around us purchasing something, because that's what keeps capitalism going, or having the time and energy to engage in behaviors or activism, time and energy that is typically only available to people in upper classes in a capitalistic society.
1: Absolutely. I mean, having the time to walk somewhere, to wash and reuse something, to like buy food in bulk and prepare meals at home. Time is a limited commodity, especially where we are in society right now.
0: Well, and on top of that, this idea that production is morally superior to rest, where we feel like, um, you know, if you say, well, it's, it's a luxury to have the time to do this. I think there's a lot of people that think, well, I, I technically have the time you know, if I didn't have hobbies, or rest, or look at TikTok, and there we feel like there's this moral imperative to produce, 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 produce. And so we feel like resting, relaxing, recreating our indulgences, their disposables. And that if we're doing something like that, you know, unless we're replacing every minute of our day with something productive, we still have time. And so if we're not using that time to do A, B and C, we feel guilty.
1: Yes. And I mean, I think that's true from an environmentalism lens, from what I, I'm i not a parent, but I understand that to be true about parenting, about our academic lives, our work lives, our relationships. We are constantly being pressured to produce and churn something out and move forward. But in terms of, I mean, who is collectively responsible for fixing climate change? There are like 100 corporations in the world that are responsible for like 70% of climate emissions. I mean, who is responsible for climate change? It is like enormous corporations. It is the U.S. Department of Defense. It is huge entities that are, for the most part, out of our individual control. And I don't say that to be nihilistic because another kind of myth that I think we've been sold about climate change is that it's something that is going to happen, that's going to be catastrophic. Eventually, like Eventually At some point, we we're going to go over a cliff and suddenly life will change. But the reality of climate change is that Climate change is already damaging people's health. It already takes lives every year. The results of it are already some people's reality and have been people's reality. And if you are in a position to not be directly feeling it, it's probably because you are living in a place of relative privilege. And so it's not really helpful to think about it as like this doomsday kind of thing that we all have to band together before a certain point, or we're all going to get blown off the face of the earth you can think of it as small actions in your community, smaller initiatives, organizing, and kind of, what am I talking about? Progress over a big sweeping change.
0: Yeah. So when we talk about these 100 corporations, and we recognize, okay, this is kind of where the make or break change will happen. And I feel like there's kind of two ways in which that could change. One narrative that we're given is if we all band together and stop the demand of these plastics, water waste, blah, 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 right? Like we all band together and stop buying water bottles, then these companies will have to change. That's one narrative that I've heard. And then the other narrative is if we all band together and place collective political pressure on our government to regulate you know, industries that are within our country's control, that is the way to go. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, which of those narratives is more accurate? Which of those narratives should we be focusing on? Which one's more realistic?
1: <laughs> I think that they both have their place. And in terms of the first question, which is kind of a boycott economy, right? Let's keep our money. Realizing that that is not always realistic, again, due to Personal finances, what people need to live. Like plastic water bottles have their place. Other forms of single use plastic have their place. Political action, I do think, is important and effective. And something that I learned working as a contractor for the EPA and the CDC for the past four years, you know, I worked for those agencies under the Trump administration. And what was interesting is there were a lot of really good scientists and activists at those organizations doing their best to chug along and perform good science and get things done. And so I think that continuous political pressure is worthwhile, especially, you know, we tend to think of things at the national level. What's the presidential administration doing? What is our Congress doing? But at the state and local levels as well, organizing and pressuring politicians does work and does have an impact. And voting for people to put in office who will protect and promote programs and social services that align with your values does have an impact and is important.
0: I think what the majority of people that I talk to that are really struggling when you know they're looking at, okay, when I don't buy prepackaged food, I tend to not eat that day. Or when I... You know, my dishes pile up in the sink, my anxiety goes nuts, and I don't have the capacity to engage right now at this time without kind of like selling my mental health soul, so to speak, right? And so when these people are asking themselves, you know, what can I do? And I like how you sort of painted this picture of start with, you know, what do you need to function and then fill in the gaps with more compatible eco-friendly behaviors that work in your life. And I also want to encourage people, you know, I think that especially when it comes to mental health disability, sometimes because we're struggling with perfectionism, we can't by ourselves determine what do we really need because we're always thinking what we really need is just us being lazy, right? And so I think talking to a therapist, a counselor, or even just a friend that you trust, allowing someone to have some input onto, no, Casey, just buy some paper plates like you need to eat, right? Like letting someone else that you trust have a voice in that conversation because I think that we tend to have just the right amount of self-loathing to say, oh, if you you don't really need that, you're just being lazy. And and a lot of times that's not true. And so getting someone else to help you with that conversation on what adaptive routines do I really need to live and thrive in my life? And once you sort of realize that, how can I then fill in the gaps with some eco-friendly behaviors? In that moment, when we talk about how can I fill in the gaps with eco-friendly behaviors, I feel as though we are sort of drawn to the boycott economy narrative as like, that's where we should go first. Like, okay, how can I have less plastic? How can I do this? And those things are all good behaviors. But if it's true that the more impactful behavior might be getting involved politically to make those changes... Then, would you say that it's valid for a person to say, if I have this limited capacity left over, the best use of that capacity is not getting, you know, obsessive or worrying about how much plastics in my house, but is using that energy instead to see what's going on with my city council or something like that?
1: Yes. I think energy is, again, it's such a limited resource. And, you know, things like voting. think voting is very important voting takes like a lot of energy in some states you can't register on the same day you might have to find time off of work you know find childcare. this takes a lot of energy and like if voting and being involved politically aligns with your values then conserving energy in order to engage with that instead of I don't know cooking all week to make sure that you don't have any food waste at the end of it has value especially i think in terms of conserving energy something that i find useful is to remember to conserve energy when i have it so like oh it's like a saturday afternoon i've had my little iced coffee i'm feeling really good and i'm thinking to myself okay it's time to clean the house top to bottom or get ahead on any other tasks thinking to myself what would 2 hours of lazing around like do for me right now it might do a lot and it might give me a little bit more go-go juice for the rest of the day or the week or whatever.
0: I love that. And I mean, I'm even thinking about, you know, you can even get smaller than, you know, city level. I mean, there are parents who might be able to participate in a PTA where they can bring up, you know, is there a way we could send home digital announcements instead of paper announcements, right? Where, you know, it might be that... (laughs) Using paper plates for dinner gives you the capacity to attend a PTA meeting where you can push for what's going to be a much bigger impact of, you know, a school, even just one school reducing their paper usage or something like that. Are you frustrated by buying your kids clothes and having them grow out of them within a week? Do they itch, pinch, and they just aren't comfortable? Well, then you need to check out Posh Peanut, made from this amazing bamboo material The clothes are legitimately so soft, and they stretch with your kids as they grow. They are four times stretchier than cotton. Made to last, loved by parents, and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful, and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to all of your favorite brands, such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. Their pieces are made with that ridiculously soft fabric, and it even stays soft, wash after wash, After Wash. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code struggle. Go to poshpeanut.com slash struggle and use promo code struggle for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash struggle promo code struggle. Remember in 2018 when Border Patrol separated thousands of refugee kids from their parents, deported those parents back to their home countries while keeping the kids in the United States? Well, believe it or not, six years later, there are hundreds of families who have still not been reunited. Although we as a community may feel hopeless at times, I recently learned about an organization called Al Otro Lado, which works to reunify families. They provide holistic legal and humanitarian support to refugees, deportees and other migrants in the U.S. and Tijuana through a multidisciplinary, client-centered, harm reduction-based practice. Since 2018, they've reunified over 100 refugee families ripped apart by Trump's zero-tolerance policy. Once reunited, Al Otro Lado helps each family find legal representation, housing, and the counseling that they need in order to heal and get on their feet. You can find the link to donate to Al Otro Lado in the description of this episode or go to gum.fm slash charity and donate today. You can also consider volunteering with the organization, which offers opportunities that are both in-person and virtual. The best way to get involved is by filling out an application on their website, alotrolado.org slash volunteer. That's A-L-O-T-R-O-L-A-D-O.
1: Absolutely. And I also think that specifically in terms of I think a lot of sustainability swaps center on food. Like what should we be buying? What bags should we be using? How should we be cooking? What plates should we be using? And I just want to like let everybody know, give them some peace of mind from an epidemiologist. The biggest way that food impacts yours and your family's health is the importance of getting enough of it and getting enough variety. And so if eating off paper plates, if ordering in, if buying Less expensive produce that wasn't produced sustainably allows you to feed yourself and your family in a way that's satisfying and, you know, bonus if you get to meet all your nutritional needs, like that has inherent value. It's going to make our bodies more resilient to any kind of environmental stressors. This is especially important, you know, communities that are experiencing the most intense effects of climate change. Are, tend to be communities that are poor, that are of color, that already face food insecurity and nutritional deficiencies, and, you know, our very basic human needs of food and, you know, shelter, et cetera. Those usurp our need to engage in environmentalism.
0: So when we were emailing back and forth, I was asking you sort of like, what do you view as sort of the most, the actions that have the most impact and perhaps the eco actions that have the least impact? And one of the things you said that was surprising to me is you said using the social programs that are available to you is one of the most impactful things you can do in terms of environmental behaviors. Can you talk about that for a minute?
1: Yeah, sure. So when I say using social programs that are available to you, I mean things like Medicaid if you have any food-related benefits, so SNAP or CHIP or WIC, these are programs that the government puts money into to make sure that your basic human needs are met. They are imperfect, and a lot of the time, they are not successful at meeting everybody's basic needs. But the government uses the amount of money spent on those programs year to year to budget for them. So essentially, if you Qualify for those programs and you use them, not only is it hopefully going to benefit yourself and your family, it's going to tell the government, okay, this community needs this investment. It's using this investment. And that's really important, especially because, again, the communities most impacted by pollution and climate change tend to be communities that have a lot of people in them who qualify for those programs. So, you know, for example, a low income community might live near a highway, they might have higher rates of air pollution, adequate nutrition in that community is going to help make their bodies more resilient to, again, environmental stressors. And making use of those programs is going to tell the government that these things that meet basic human needs need to be prioritized.
0: So are you saying that when we use social programs that we, social sort of safety programs that we qualify for like this, that we're not just saying oh, this is affecting my family, but that in doing that, we're actually communicating back to the government, which communities need the most assistance, even in other areas.
1: Sometimes the government definitely has research initiatives where we look at the kinds of communities and the socioeconomic characteristics of people who require and use services. But even more so, it will help the government to understand the needs of your personal community.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, and then you talked about limiting air travel.
1: Yeah, so this is, I'm not here to tell anybody that they can't get on a plane, first of all. There are lots of good and valid reasons for air travel. You know, maybe your loved ones are far away or I don't know, I like vacation as much as the next person. But if you are truly feeling overwhelmed and having shame around your carbon footprint, I just am here to let you know that all of the little actions day-to-day that you may engage in are really barely making a dent against the amount of carbon that is emitted from taking a single flight. So if you can find opportunity, if you're really looking for environmental behaviors to engage in, finding opportunities to forego air travel is it's a lot of bang for your buck. <laughs>
0: I love that. So it's not something to necessarily beat yourself up over if you're taking airplanes, but it's a lot of bang for your buck in terms of I'm having a really hard time functioning this year. And if I could just replace one vacation that we would travel on an airplane with a road trip to a closer location, then maybe that gives somebody sort of the sigh of relief of I'm doing my part. And now I can just kind of focus on getting kind of surviving the rest of the year.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's really just, again, give yourself that peace of mind if you are experiencing intense shame or intense guilt, because I don't know, you talk a lot in your content about how those feelings don't actually lead us to functionality or productivity. So any tool in the toolbox to combat guilt and shame, I'm a fan of. Yeah. And
0: then in terms of the behaviors that have the least amount of impact, you talk about, you know, how some conservation behaviors are just naturally rewarding. But, you know, your approach to environmentalism is really human health focused. And so I love that you talk about giving people permission to prioritize their own health and happiness. Can you talk about that too? I mean, we've kind of been talking about that the whole time, but...
1: yeah. Absolutely. I think in terms of behaviors that have the least impact, again, like I mentioned, anytime that you are feeling that little goblin in your brain say, I need to go out and buy this thing in order to be more sustainable, I need to buy this jar, I need to buy this water bottle, etc. Just take a breath and ask yourself, do I already own something that could fulfill that purpose? Like plastic takeout containers? I mean, like, Things in your house, they don't have to look photogenic. It does not have to look like a zero waste Instagram page in order to be sustainable. So I would say, like, you know, rushing out or to like buy sustainable fashion pieces, which I have been guilty of in the past, like, it's okay to just wear your fast fashion pieces that you own and you love. They're already made. You're not creating waste by doing that. And I think, again, in terms of honoring your own health and well being while engaging in environmentalism, when you think about a behavior, just clocking. Am I feeling excited about this? Does it feel doable and accessible to me? Or is it giving me a really bad feeling in my gut of like, I already know that I'm not going to be able to sustain this commitment. And I'm already experiencing shame about it. I would invite everybody to just take a deep breath and ask themselves, why am I feeling this antagonizing shame? It's probably related to barriers in your life, either due to circumstance or your health or your identities, and releasing yourself easier said than done, right?
0: Okay, the other thing that you said was was so great. You said, if the government is allowed to consider practically when setting environmental health regulations then you're allowed to do the same when thinking about your own behavior. So the government is asking themselves questions like, can I afford this? Can we do this program and still be able to do the other programs we need? And so your point is kind of like, you know, you as a person get those same sort of leeways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, I work on setting drinking water guidelines for the EPA. And on every project, every drinking water guideline, we have a dedicated team of economists saying, what is it going to take to enforce this? Can we reasonably ask people to do this? Can we follow through? Again, do we have the money? Those are questions that you are allowed to ask yourself. And the answer is allowed to be no.
0: It's okay if you do not embody the archetype of eco-warrior.
1: That is okay. I don't know that any of us ever do, so.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, I love everything that you've said. I think this picture of seeing sort of eco-friendly behaviors as a buffet where, you know, you can pick and choose ones that are complementary to your life that match your capacity at the time. And even if there's a period of time where somebody is truly focusing on surviving – you know, your period of survival is not going to make or break us.
1: No. Also in service of that, when you're going through your period of survival, there are other people out there that are remembering their reusable bags and not using the paper plates. And, you know, maybe your circumstances change at some point and you're able to engage with those behaviors. Maybe they don't. That's also fine.
0: And for me, I feel like that motive would work even better to me where it's like, okay, if I have the opportunity to like, do the extra thing being like you know what i'm going to do the extra thing today you know so that someone out there can eat that prepackaged salad that's what they need
1: yeah exactly and i like i don't know something that i've noticed in your closing duties videos you're like and the last thing i do for closing duties to set myself up for success is i brew cold brew cuz i want that in the morning but then sometimes you're like actually i was surviving and i decided i'm going to get starbucks tomorrow yep and then living in peace with that decision Getting Starbucks on Friday allows you to, again, maybe then you have the energy to make your coffee at home the rest of the week.
0: Awesome. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for spending the time with us. And is there anything that you want to say in closing? Oh, gosh.
1: I would love for everybody to just let themselves a little bit more off the hook than I think we are inclined to do. Just take a deep breath. It's okay. I feel like as an environmental scientist, sometimes it feels like taboo to say like, it's okay, but it is. And taking care of yourself is okay and allowed.
0: We have better things to do today than hate ourselves over a bag of clothes we can't manage to get to the donation bin.
1: We absolutely do. So many better things.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Rebecca, so much.